Spotlight. Brought to you by the Isle of Man Arts Council. Pastor Mai and welcome to Spotlight. I'm Sarah Hendy and on today's programme we have a rather mystical theme with two authors, Zoe Gilbert, author of Folk, who is part of the stellar lineup at next week's Manx Lit Fest, and Deborah Harkin, author of A Discovery of Witches, which has recently been adapted for television and aired on Sky One last week. Give us a shout if you'd like to share any creative events and happenings with us. You can email me at spotlight at manxradio.com or you can message the Manx Radio Facebook page. Zoe Gilbert joins us from her home on a hill near the woods in South London to tell us about her debut novel, Folk, which she'll be discussing at the Manx Lit Fest next Wednesday, September the 25th at Andreas Church. Congratulations on the, the success of your debut Thank novel. You. Um, I, I believe that the book Folk actually takes quite a lot of inspiration from the Isle of Man. It does. I started coming and spending time um, on the Isle of Man over 10 years ago now. I already had uh, some family living there and then a lot more of them moved over. And uh, without me really noticing, I think the landscape started entering whatever fiction I was writing quite subconsciously. I think because when I'm there, I'm just walking and looking and letting myself be absorbed into it, not thinking about work or anything like that. Um, So I found myself writing seaside settings to begin with. Uh, And then when I came to write folk, I was looking for folkloric inspiration obviously but trying to create a place where it's plausible that folklore can kind of exist alongside everyday reality Um, I wanted isolation and a rugged sort of natural landscape and sure enough I discovered several stories in that that the world I was writing was was pretty much uh, the Isle of Man and even the shape of the island and the uh, town where my characters live is, is quite a lot like Peel, I think, which is where some of my family live. It's so nice that you you came over and you've enjoyed the landscape, and that's what's inspired you. Is that where you you seem to gain most of your inspiration when you're writing? I think so. I love thinking about place and setting, and the way that atmospheres kind of influence us. And um, I've always had a tendency to look for the magical in landscapes anyway. But because the Isle of Man has has got so many sort of astonishing places, uh, and not least kind of the coastline in the south of the island, but all the things that I loved discovering as a child, but also as an adult, like caves and um, hills that you can climb to the top of and maybe get blown off and secret coves. And the glens in particular are are really inspiring. And and they just, they're so full of, of legends and stories already. Uh, but it feels a very natural landscape to put uh, folklore, some invented folklore into or, or create people who kind of believe in the magical side of, of life just as much as they do in everyday grind. There's a hugely kind of growing interest in what happens when we engage with nature and uh, it's easy to accuse people of a kind of romantic attitude towards the countryside. If you don't have to live there and work there, it's very easy to turn up and say, oh, look at that lovely wood, and then go home to your centrally heated house. But I think people are genuinely realising that the kind of technology-saturated everyday life that a, lot of us, that a lot of us lead now isn't particularly full of meaning and meaningful experiences. And uh, 
you get space to think and also to think differently when you step outside of kind of urban settings and social media. Uh, and, and nature can kind of let your imagination go a little bit more and also remind you of, of different ways of thinking that have existed alongside each other in the past. Uh, we kind of live in this very rational, scientific age, but um, but I do think that people find meaning in the stories they tell themselves that aren't necessarily based on a rational reality. And so the supernatural and folklore kind of very naturally creeps in to accompany those experiences of, of nature. And it's very hard to be somewhere as atmospheric as the Isle of Man and not think about the stories of things that have happened there and, and what it might have been like to live there in the past. Are there any stories that we might recognise that you, you drew upon in um, in crafting your novel? Uh, yeah, there's there's one in particular which... Is, is the story in the book is called Waterball Bride, but it was kind of inspired by a combination of reading about water horses and water bulls from the Isle of Man. I was thinking of the Tarotushti in particular. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, um, which I actually found in a book of Manx fairy tales that my aunt lent me. Um, and, and my version sort of followed the original folk tale quite closely, but then veers off into its own um its own kind of version of events, but possibly gets a bit darker than the original, if that's possible. <laughs> um, so that's that's in there. And I think there, there are also bits of folklore or tales that I've stolen from other islands around around Britain, in particular some Scottish islands. But there are also bits of, of folklore that I kind of created, being inspired by um, the Manx landscape and it, the gorse in particular I love. Um, smelling and walking through when I'm there and it always amazes me how high it grows and um, so the first story in my book which is set in a maze of yellow gorse up on the headland it, it has a character in it that I is mythical and I created her sort of to fit into a Manx landscape because I couldn't find any gorse myths that already existed so I've tried to sort of create folk tales that are true to what's what's there to some extent but might be new I'm sort of curious about your creative process. You obviously go out and enjoy the landscape and and kind of soak up the environment and uh, add a bit of magic to it, as you say. But do you carry a notebook or do you like um, call yourself and leave voicemails with ideas on or something (laughs) or a scrapbook or something? What what kind of how do you how do you log your ideas and, and develop them? I do keep a notebook and I carry it around with me religiously. But if I if I'm really in a pinch, um, I will send myself text messages that's about as techy as I get <laughs> if I have to get something down and I think I'm going to forget it uh, but I also collect images or if I find something interesting on the internet that I know I will never go back and find again I'll print it out and stuff it in a folder um, to go through and kind of but yeah I, I tend to keep a really messy sort of not very sensible really um, set of notes that goes into the back of my notebook or into the front of my notebook and and then I have to keep going back through and and reading and finding ideas that I had a little while ago that I haven't had time to develop it always amuses me when I do this that the same ideas come up again and again and I clearly think I'm having them afresh every time (laughs) but actually I've been carrying them around for ages Uh, so I had plenty of time because I wrote folk over quite a few years plenty of time to sort of absorb new bits of folklore and research and and keep coming back to the Isle of Man so each story had quite a lot of time to sort of grow fairly organically and be written rewritten many many times uh, until 
I think that's what allowed each one to kind of have its own little world inside it as well as all taking place within one setting. What are you working on at the moment? I am writing a book that's sort of set in and inspired by a, a woodland that only barely really exists anymore. There used to be a huge tract of woodland south of London, which kind of spread from quite near the Thames all the way down to Croydon. So it covered miles and miles and was full of all kinds of interesting things, charcoal burners and gypsies and shipbuilders. And it had a, had a really interesting history, but it shrunk, not surprisingly, over time. And now there are only a few shreds of it left, but it kind of, it, so it partly exists in reality and it partly exists in the imagination. It used to be called the Great Northwood, which is kind of silly for something in South London, but there we go. So I started learning about it because I was living quite nearby and I've ended up writing a kind of alternative magical history of, of what has gone on in that wood over about a thousand years, really looking at our relationship with uh, naughtiness in a way, really. I got really interested in, in these kind of myth folkloric, mythical and also sort of semi-religious characters who are sort of gods of mischief and mayhem. Uh, which seemed to be really important as a way for humanity to let off steam and the way that they, they've kind of been squashed and squished and pushed away into either being wholly bad or wholly made up figures that we don't really take seriously anymore. Uh, so Herm the Hunter is, is one of those kinds of characters or Odin, um, Harlequin, I think all these concepts are connected, so I've kind of brought them all together to thread through this book and have a look at what happens to humanity when we stop having openly dark fun and try and squish our, our naughty natures, but all, in, all inside the wood. I hope that makes sense. I'm only halfway through it, so it might yet turn into something else. No, absolutely. It does make sense. And it's um, it's interesting because, uh, I don't know, here at the station, we've been having a lot of conversations recently about play and about our serious attitudes oh. in our modern lives where everything's serious, everything's public, everything is so pressured. And so to have those kind of, um, I suppose, naughty role models in a way, I don't know, make an allowance for you to sort of um, maybe live slightly out of the ordinary and, and have harmless fun kind of. Yeah, I think so. And so to get away from that seriousness of the everyday and there's something about the forest and, and woods that seem to allow people to kind of enter a slightly alternative um, state of mind perhaps a kind of edge land and boundary places where you're not quite in civilization so you're not in town being observed by everybody but you're not quite in total wilderness so you can you can find your way in a wood but you never have a, a clear sight line so you're quite hidden from other people and they're, but they're also hidden from you um, and I'm, I was always interested going into those local woods in London. They're being run as a kind of a nature reserve with, with volunteers taking great care of the woods and sort of encouraging species to come back and inhabit them that weren't doing so well. This is a wonderful thing and, and, and great news every time a new species turned up. But at the same time, the local kids were going in there and graffitiing things and having fires and carving into trees and... Um, doing goodness knows what else and it was equally their space and I felt like they were the naughty side of the wood and then the kind of earnest um, adult side of the wood was, was kind of coexisting and we tend to want to reject the naughty side and I kind of wanted to put it back and, and admit that it's always been there and that this isn't a new behaviour and we should kind of welcome it to some degree. <laughs> 
Wow, gosh, I can't wait to read it now. And yeah, I mean, as it evolves, it'll be interesting to see, uh, yeah, see the outcome compared to our conversation now. That'll be something really interesting yeah. to observe because, because it like, will be yeah, interesting for me because <laughs> we know like these things evolve, and I don't know. Sometimes the last minute change is the most profound ones. You just never know. So yeah, well, good luck with that. Um, yeah. And and while you're you. while you're writing, you're you're studying as well. Is that right? I am. Yeah, I'm. I'm doing a, a PhD and um, in creative writing. So it's it's mostly creative and actually folk my first book is part of the PhD so it'll get handed in with my dissertation when I finally finish that part um so I've kind of done the fun bits and now I'm and now I'm doing the the studious part where I look at other people who are using folk tales in new fiction writing it's great because it means I get to read lots of my contemporaries who are also drawing on folk tales and particularly using them to write short stories which is a form I'm really interested in so I get to spend time reading people like Lucy Wood, who writes inspired by Cornwall a lot of the time and Cornish folk tales, Kirsty Logan, who takes inspiration from Scotland, um, and all sorts of other things. Uh, so I'm I'm desperately trying to finish that whilst writing book two, and the, and they sort of overlap a little bit, but also clash because I've <laughs> creatively tried to move on, but I'm but I'm still writing about. Uh, folklore in it or trying to do it in a kind of critical way which is really really different from writing fiction obviously yeah I mean two completely different hats there I'm not quite sure how you manage yeah. it it sounds like a real handful slowly <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm doing it part-time luckily so I can kind of I can switch hats and I tend to have a run at it for a while try and write something sensible to give to my supervisor and then I can flip back to thinking about writing or thinking about teaching and it's quite refreshing but it's also just tricky swapping swapping between I'll be glad I'll be glad when I finished it but I certainly won't regret having done it because I've learned all sorts of things that I wouldn't have learned if I hadn't had to really dig in deep like that Wowie. Yeah, well, yeah, all the best with that. We'll be rooting for you. I'm sure you got this. Thank you. Um, <laughs> um, and um, and being based on, sorry, on a totally different topic now, um, being based in London, you, you actually co-founded the Lit Lab, uh, the London Lit Lab. Can you tell yeah. us what that is and what that what that means to, to people? Yeah, I, I got together with a friend of mine who's also an author who's called Lily Dunn we write very different kinds of, of things she's into autobiographical fiction memoir um, we were both doing creative writing PhDs and being told all the time how competitive it is to try and get a job at a university and how it's practically impossible and you know what are you going to do when you finish this PhD and feeling a bit downhearted about about what we were doing trying to get doctors before our names um, and decided we would just start teaching people what we knew about creative writing but in a much more informal setting uh, we wanted it to be really friendly and accessible and interesting and try to run our courses in lovely places so that when people come on a creative writing course with us they're kind of having a little a little holiday from life at the same time as hopefully getting some writing done or learning something um so we just we just kind of kicked off and thought, okay, here we go, let's see what happens. <laughs> and it's it's grown from there. So now we run lots of different courses kind of based on our specialisms. I run courses about folk tales and Lily runs life writing courses and we also love teaching together. And we've ended up teaching at places like the British Library, building courses that kind of fit uh, the environment. So we lead people around the British Library and get them writing things inspired by what's around them. Uh, so it kind of just 
feeling our way and, and inviting people to come and join us and, and be relaxed. We've also ended up uh, teaching writers who are in recovery from addiction at a recovery centre in North London. And as a result of that, we're co-editing um, an anthology of writing either by people who have been through recovery or are in recovery or have been around people who have recovered from um, addiction or from illness. Um, and we're currently crowdfunding that on this amazing publisher called Unbound, who sort of pick a book they decide they like the look of and then help you promote it and get people to sign up before they publish it to get a copy with a with their name printed in the back. Uh, so, we're, so we're gradually building support for that at the moment. And it's been so exciting watching how many people are interested in this topic and also how many people want to support new writers and get their work out there. So it's been really heartening uh, watching the writing community kind of turn up and help out with that. The title of it is A Wild and Precious Life, which is a quote from a poet. And we thought it sort of summed up what it's like <laughs> to go through that process and also find ways to talk about it. Uh, so, yeah, do go and have a look and, and welcome any support at all. Part of part of our sort of funding model is to make sure that we get copies of the book into libraries and also into recovery centres so that people who might not be able to pay to read it can, can access a copy. We're super lucky because you're coming to the Isle of Man for the Manx Literature Festival and you're you're yeah. going to be doing a presentations but also also a workshop I believe. Yes. So on the 26th of September I'll be at Andreas Church in the morning from 11 a.m. Uh, doing a, a workshop for an hour and a half where we're going to look at uh, folk tales, in particular Bluebeard actually because. He's sort of one of my favourites. I'm quite obsessed with how awful he is. Um, and using Bluebeard and various versions to come up with ideas for new stories together. It'll be really informal and relaxed. Um, it should be good fun. And then later on that evening, in the same place, I'm I'm going to be talking about my book. But luckily for me, uh, that talking is going to be interspersed with music from the bookshop band who I have seen play before. They're fantastic. They create their own songs inspired by uh, the plots of books or, or indeed fate tales so I don't know what songs I'll be singing but I'm intrigued to find out and I think it will be very atmospheric in that church. Yeah I believe they were commissioned by Philip Pullman to, to write two pieces for um, La Belle Sauvage the, the first of the Book of Dust series so they are they come highly recommended Ooh. that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, well <laughs> So we, we we can't wait. I mean, I'll be there with bells on. I can't I can't wait to come and um, enjoy the lit fest and your your part in it. So thank you very very much for joining us today. It's uh, it's lovely thank to talk you. to you. Tickets and more information about Manx Lit Fest events and guests can be found at manxlitfest.com. The link to that, as ever, will be on the Spotlight blog. Spotlight. Brought to you by the Isle of Man Arts Council. And from one mystical novel to another, Deborah Harkness is our next guest this afternoon. You may already have seen the trailers and know that the first novel in her All Souls series has been adapted for television, with the premiere of episode one airing last Friday on Sky One. A Discovery of Witches is brought to life by an all-star cast, including Teresa Palmer, Matthew Good and Owen Teal. Once the world was full of wonders, but it belongs to humans now. We have all but disappeared. Demons. 
watches, hiding in plain sight. Well, my mum is from Liverpool, so uh, I think really my interests can all be blamed on Britain because uh, when I was about eight years old, we took a, a family trip back home for my mum, and they took me to an awful lot of haunted castles, and I think I became very much interested in the subject. Almost two-thirds of all the people in Britain believe that in magic. Your main character, Diana, she she's a witch and she's you describe her as a modern day witch for people who haven't yet read the books and are looking forward to seeing the series. Does she have innate powers that she um, harnesses or or is this something that we might be able to relate to modern day witchcraft as we know it as sort of Wicca or neo-paganism, which is based on on rituals and um, and uh, traditions? That's a great question. Diana in A Discovery of Witches um, has been terrible at learning all of those sort of rituals and spells that her aunts have been trying to teach her. Um, And she doesn't think she has any magical talent at all. Or if she has some, it's very unpredictable, very unreliable, not much to speak of. Uh, And then she discovers that actually um, she's got talents and abilities she hasn't even known that she possessed, which I think for, you know, is another sort of relatable uh, thing for many of us who discover along the way that, oh, actually I can sing or I can cook or whatever it might be. For Diana, it's magic, but uh, for us, maybe something slightly less romantic than that, but still. And um, in terms of crafting this world, which is very much set in our own world, but with... um, realms beyond in a much more vivid way how was it um putting that together it was a lot of fun actually because you know like you i was really struck by how we think we're so modern and scientific but actually look at the books we read look at the stories we gravitate towards and i started to think about my own research subjects who lived 500 years ago and i they believed absolutely 100% that the real world stopped and then there was a a supernatural world right on the other side of that world and that the two were always in conversation and sometimes the supernatural poked its way into the natural and I started thinking what if they were right what would the signs be in today uh, today's world in modern living that there was really magic around that there were really vampires witches and demons living alongside us Uh, hiding in plain sight. And that was what was so fun about the project and the story. And I think it's one of the things that makes the television show so fun because it's so clearly our world, only more so. It must be quite a surreal experience to um, to be part of um, of bringing your your books, your stories to life uh, for the screen. How was that as a creative kind of having to having to entrust people with your story and with um, the world you've created, but also try and retain its integrity? Yeah, I mean, it's surreal for sure. You got that absolutely right. Um, I have these moments where I have to pinch myself to make sure it's really happening. Um, And then the other, you know, for the other side of the question, um, you know, it was really important to me that I find uh, a production studio in Bad Wolf with Jane Tranter and Julie Gardner that I really trusted who who have done lots of very fine adaptations and continue to be interested in doing adaptations and that they were able to find partners like Sky One and Now TV who could invest in the show and provide you know the financial backing and the time that would was required to get the phenomenal actors that we have and also you know the 
the special effects, the location shots. It's, you know, really complicated story in terms of all of those pieces. And uh, so you have to sort of give over that control, which is always sort of an illusion anyway. Let's face it, none of us are really in control of much, um, into people who you trust, the hands of people you trust. And that that's what I did. Um, and on Spotlight here on Manx Radio, the arts programme on our national radio station, we're always fascinated by the creative process. Are you still creating at the moment? Um, what's what's your creative landscape looking like right now? Well, I finished a book this this. Uh, spring called Times Convert that's actually coming out four days after the television show debuts. So it's it's out on the 18th of September. So we're having a sort of a bustling September. And in terms of creativity, I have a few historical novels that I'm playing with and uh, a few more stories from this world of the All Souls universe. And mostly, like all of us these days, I think, you know, I'm I'm struggling to find uh time for that creative spirit uh, uh, to sort of uh, gain some traction, to give it a little bit of breathing room and and, and attention. So hopefully in the not too distant future, um, I'll be able to carve out a little bit more space to sit all by myself with my laptop and bang one of these things out on the keyboard. Oh, well, yeah, we, we wish you well with that. It's the, it's the best. That's living the dream, really, isn't it? Um, the, it's the creative moment. It moments absolutely that, yeah. is. Yeah. <laughs> The five-part series of A Discovery of Witches airs each Friday on Sky One and is also available on Now TV. Now, if you're looking for something artsy to do this evening, head along to the Manx Museum, where the life and work of Rainer Hoff is being celebrated in an exhibition which opens tonight at 7 o'clock. 100 years ago, Rainer Hoff was in France, serving in the British Army in the Great War. Manx-born, Hoff is best known for his moving sculptures on the Anzac War Memorial in Hyde Park, Sydney, Australia, but little is known about his formative years in Great Britain. Deborah Beck, author of Rainer Hoff, The Life of a Sculptor, will explore his eventful life in Britain, his meteoric rise as a prominent star of the art world in Sydney, and explain why this talented sculptor left Britain to move to Australia in 1923. And that's all we have time for this week. Join me again for Spotlight next Wednesday at half past five. And don't forget, you can listen again or download the show as a podcast on the Manx Radio website. Have a lovely creative week. Slen you.